welcome and thank you for joining us tonight for the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Braille Institute is pleased to partner with Dr. Bill Takeshita, Chief of Optometry for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision and Training for Braille Institute and Airs LA to bring you tonight's topic, What's New in Medical Treatment for Visually Impaired Children? Well, thank you very much, Nancy, for that nice introduction. And it's really great for me to be able to offer, you know, this service to all of you. And we really, really appreciate so many of you. It sounds like we really have a very, very large audience. Now, these are lectures that we will be putting on every month. And each month, the topic varies. And we're also going to have different guest speakers to come in and talk. So last year we had Dr. Mark Borchert who talked about optic nerve hypoplasia and we had Dr. Cal Tawanzi talking about retinopathy of prematurity. And this year we're going to continue that by having some guest speakers and we will advertise that. If any of you are not on our mailing list and you just heard this from another person, you can actually send us an email and we will put you on that mailing list to make certain that you get it. Now, the way that you email that, you can write this down or you can listen to the podcast later that we have recorded. And you can mail it to S as in Sue, Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, hyphen, Strafasi, S-T-R-A-F-A-C-I. So that's S, Parker, hyphen, Strafasi, at BrailleInstitute.org. Or you may also email it to me at Dr. Bill Foundation, and that's D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com. So we thank all of you for that. And we also want to let you know that this is being recorded by Airs LA. Airs LA is the largest website that you can get podcasts that are related to topics that are related to vision. We record different types of lectures and seminars, and we also have other types of really great programs that are recorded on Airs LA. So you can go to www.airsla to listen to these particular podcasts. Again, that's www.airsla.org, A-I-R-S-L-A.org. And lastly, you can also go to the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org, and you can hear this. So this evening, what we're going to talk about are some of the new medical breakthroughs to help children as well as adults who suffer from vision impairment. Now, when we think about all of the different issues with vision, we have to really understand, first of all, how is it that vision occurs? First of all, we know that we do have eyes and whether a child has one or two eyes, the eye is extremely important because the eye is what receives the light information. Now, what the light does is it is then converted into an electrical signal, and it is then sent down a nerve that is called the optic nerve, and then it eventually reaches the very back part of your brain, which is called the occipital lobe of the brain. So in order for vision to occur, we really have to have the three different components. We have to have the eyeball, 
we have to have the optic nerve, and we have to have the visual center of the brain. So when we think about children, we know that the most common cause of vision impairment of children today is something that is called neurological vision impairment. Now, neurological vision impairment is something that we're learning a whole lot more about, and it basically means that the visual centers of the brain, the back of the brain, is not processing information normally. The causes of this are, number one, the lack of oxygen. So the three causes of neurological vision impairment that we most often see are, number one, the lack of oxygen. Number two, it could be a lack of oxygen as a result of a brain hemorrhage. Or number three, we also see that it may be related to asphyxia or merconium aspiration. Other possible causes of the neurological vision impairment are related to in utero drug exposure. We also see that many times it's children who are born very premature. And we also see situations where the child has suffered from seizures disorder due to trauma. Now, when we think about these particular causes of the neurological vision impairment, which again is the most common cause of vision impairment of children, we find that the most effective types of ways of preventing this is to really make certain that all women who are pregnant, that they receive the appropriate prenatal care. Number two, that they also are on a good, healthy diet. And number three, that they do not smoke, drink, or abuse drugs. Some of the things that we often see at the Center for the Partially Sighted is that we see many, many children who have neurological vision impairment, and one of the issues is that the mother was a drug abuser, and this has affected the child. It affected the way that the brain was developed. It affected the way that the child was delivered. Many times these children are born very, very prematurely, and this causes many, many different types of complications. So the first thing that we really want to do is we want to educate all mothers, mothers who are expecting and even mothers who are not even planning, who are not planning on having a baby, that they really need to take care of their bodies by Taking care of their bodies, we see that there's a greater risk that the pregnancy will be successful and the child will be healthier. Now, what about other types of situations where we see that a child has been born with a particular type of eye problem? When we think about birth defects to the eye, many times the cause of these types of birth defects are related to genetics. When we think about the eye and all the tissues of the brain, the optic nerve, and the eye itself, we know that the tissue is made up of cells. Now, each of these cells contain DNA, and DNA is the genetic material that makes each one of us a unique individual. What DNA does is the DNA tells the cell what to produce, and what to manufacture. It's similar to the recipe in a recipe book that the DNA is going to tell the cell what to make. So we often think about all of these different types of components 
of things that are inside the cell. And when all of these things are put together, it can help a cell to grow. It could help a cell to perform a chemical reaction. And it could also help the cell to survive. So we see that there's many different types of conditions where children unfortunately are born with abnormal tissues in the eye, and this is the cause of their vision impairment. We now know that in these situations where the child is born with an abnormal gene, that the cells do not produce the appropriate materials. So if we think of an analogy that we have a cookbook, and the cookbook is telling us how to make bread, well, we need to have flour in order to make the bread. But if the cell is making salt instead of the flour, that bread isn't going to come out right. Well, the same thing happens here with the eyes, is that when there's a genetic mutation where the DNA is not normal or the page on our cookbook is not right, the cell makes the wrong material, and as a result, the child may not then see properly. Well, the, the most obvious thing that we would say is, why don't you fix the gene, right? It makes sense. If we know that the problem with many of these types of conditions is that the gene is not normal, which is called a genetic mutation, why don't we just fix the gene? Well, when we think about a gene, a gene is something that is extremely, extremely complicated. It's as though we took millions and millions of people and we line them up in a particular order. If we simply change the position of one person in that million-person line, it would actually change what is being produced. So genetic mutations are quite common. Genetic mutations can occur when people are exposed to different types of toxins. It might be that a person is exposed to too much ultraviolet radiation from the sun. For example, when people worship the sun, we know that some people might develop skin cancer. The thought is some of that ultraviolet radiation from the sun caused the genes to become mutated, and this is why the cancer started to develop on the skin. We see that other people might be exposed to different toxins, such as insecticides and pesticides. For example, for those of you who don't know me, in 2008, I became totally blind, and I have a very rare retina condition. We believe that the reason that my cells died was because of a genetic mutation that might be related to insecticides. You see, my parents had nurseries and farms, and as a kid, that's what I would do all the time, is I would spray all of our plants and fruit trees and things with insecticides and pesticides, and now we think that this has something to do with these types of genetic mutations. It's also very interesting that my father and my father's brother, who both own the nurseries, they both develop Parkinson's disease, and Parkinson's is also related to insecticides and pesticides. So basically, when we are exposed to different types of toxins and radiation, it can cause a genetic mutation. But if we thought about the fact that if we had millions of people lined up in a single line, say we have 100 million people lined up in a single line, 
we have to find out which person is in the wrong order. And that is something that can be quite difficult. But this is what a lot of the science is being performed at this time. And now it's so wonderful. It really, really is wonderful because the scientists are now able to identify many of the abnormal genes that are causing different types of eye conditions. In the past, there was a condition that was called Leber's congenital amaurosis, and this was a really, really difficult disease. It was a disease that affected both the rod and the cone cells of the retina, and it would cause children to lose their central vision and their peripheral vision. It's in the same family as retinitis pigmentosa, and it's something that really caused significant vision loss in many children. Well, what the researchers found was that they identified a breed of dogs, and it was kind of amazing that this breed of dogs had Leber's congenital amaurosis. They have a disease that's almost exactly like it. And what the researchers did is they did studies with these dogs, and they found out which part of the gene was wrong. They then cut out that portion of the gene and they implanted a normal gene in that area and they found that these dogs who were blind, they regained their vision. And this was really big news that they were able to do this with animals. Well, within a matter of about three to four years, they then started to do this on humans, and last year at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, they did it on children. And they found that children who had such poor vision that they had difficulties with seeing where they were walking, these kids, their vision reversed. These kids are at a point where they could ride a bicycle at night, they can navigate in dark areas, and for any of you who know about retinitis pigmentosa or Leber's night vision was really their weakest type of vision. So with this one particular type of Leber's, we now know which gene is the bad gene, and gene therapy is something that can be performed to correct this particular type of vision loss. Now, today, many, many doctors throughout the country are taking blood samples and other DNA samples from people with all sorts of other types of eye diseases. There's an eye disease that is called Stargardt's disease that affects the central vision of children. It usually affects children by the time that they are 10 to 12 years of age. Now, by identifying which portion of the gene is incorrect, we're really hopeful that we will soon be able to have gene therapy that will then reverse that particular type of vision loss. We're also seeing gene therapy being performed in retinitis pigmentosa because retinitis pigmentosa is so similar to Leber's, this is where we have a lot of data. But what we're finding is that it is not only the same location that the gene is damaged for each case of retinitis pigmentosa. In some cases, it might damage gene at the level of number two, and in others, it might be at gene at the level of 102,000. 
so when we're thinking about all of these different parts of this long strand of DNA, it could be any place on there. If we try to think of this as an analogy of a of a choo-choo train that is millions and millions and millions of cars long, we find that it could be any one of those cars that is causing that type of vision loss. So for some cases, we could identify it more quickly than in others, but this is something that is very, very, very promising. I think that this whole component of gene therapy with time is going to really be something that prevents a tremendous amount of vision loss. Now, another cause of vision impairment of young children is what is called retinopathy of prematurity. In the 1950s and 60s, there were many, many children who were losing their sight, becoming totally blind because of this condition. But we now know with the medical advances that the retina surgeons really have a pretty good grasp on this condition. First of all, we know that retinopathy of prematurity is most common among premature children, especially those who are born before 32 weeks gestation. While the ophthalmologists now go into the neonatal intensive care units and they examine the eyes of these children many times. Now, there's a particular time period that the scientists and the ophthalmologists know that there's a greatest chance of the development of the retinopathy of prematurity. Now, what they really know is that there's a particular time that abnormal blood vessels grow in the eye. And what they do is that they will perform these examinations right about that particular time. By having that knowledge of knowing when's the greatest probability that this might develop, they can see it and they could treat it by using different treatments. One of the treatments is that they may use laser. A laser is a way to block off a lot of these blood vessels that grow. Another thing that we're also seeing in the research is there are new medications. There's a medication that is called Avastin and another one called Lucentis that are being used very frequently to help people who are older adults who have leaky blood vessels in the eye due to wet macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. And this type of medication has really, really helped these adults who have vision problems because of these diseases. Well, the doctors then decided, let's try this on children who have retinopathy of prematurity. And what they're finding is that there are some preliminary reports that are suggesting that using these kinds of medications in children who have retinopathy of prematurity is very, very helpful. So we see two things that are very, very encouraging with children who have retinopathy of prematurity. The first is that the doctors really know when to look for it and when to identify it. And the reason this is so important is because in the years in the past, the doctors would examine a child, and if they didn't see it at that time, they'd say, hey, everything looks good, and let's discharge this child. But now we know that there's a particular time that we must really look, and we can't just examine the baby's eyes one time only. We're going to take a look at the child's eyes many times, but in particular at this particular age. When a child is at a particular age, they're going to look very, very carefully and they can identify if the child does have it 
and now they could treat it medically very nicely. A third major cause of vision impairment of children is cataracts. Now, a cataract is something that many people are often very, very concerned about because in the old days, cataracts were really a cause of blindness. And I don't mean vision impairment, I mean blindness. There were a lot of children who were born with cataracts that were due to genetics, so that, in other words, it was a bad gene. There's other situations where it was because the child or the mother may have been exposed to rubella or the measles, and other times it could be a metabolic disorder that caused the cataract. But what we find now is that cataracts no longer have to be a cause of vision impairment because when babies are born, the doctors can look at the eyes at that point in time and the doctors could see a cataract quite easily. When a doctor sees the cataract in an infant, the cataracts can then be removed quite early. As a matter of fact, it might be within the first week or two that the cataract would then be removed. Now, when a child has a cataract, it's basically where the lens inside the eye is so clouded that light cannot get through. When you remove the cataract, light could then enter into the eye and it's going to improve the clarity of the vision. We used to have to fit children with these very, very thick Coke bottle glasses, and these glasses were so uncomfortable that many children wouldn't wear the glasses, and the brain wouldn't get stimulated because a child didn't wear the glasses. Then we came out with contact lenses, and we find that for some children, contact lenses could work pretty well. But we see that for other children, the children will just pop them out all the time. It could be very, very difficult, very frustrating for many parents to try to put the contact lens in the eye of a child. And so sometimes contact lenses are very, very difficult. So now we find that many children who are very young are being implanted where an artificial lens is surgically inserted into the eye just in the same way that it is being performed with adults. And for many of these kids, this means that they're going to have the images of faces and flowers and TV and Barney and all these other things. They're going to then focus onto the retina very sharply, and it will then stimulate the visual centers of the brain. As a result, these children will develop much, much higher vision than children who had cataracts years ago. So what I find today is that many of my patients who have been born with cataracts, their vision develops quite well if there is no other problem. Now, the reason that I say that caveat is because there are some situations that a child might have a cataract and another problem. For example, they may have a problem where the front of the eye is very, very white and clouded, and they also have a cataract. So for these children who have a cornea that is clouded, these children also have to have the cornea treated as well. But fortunately, we're seeing some really, really nice advances in the field of cornea transplant. Now, the cornea, again, is the very front tissue of the eye, and it is normally transparent. The transparent cornea allows light to enter into the eye. Now, in the old days, it was very, very difficult 
to transplant the cornea because many times the graft would become cloudy and there would be a lot of types, a lot of problems. But today, the cornea ophthalmologists, these surgeons can now transplant a single layer of the cornea. They don't necessarily have to remove the whole cornea. They can remove an individual layer. There's also other forms of a prosthetic cornea. So with all of these types of treatments, it's very, very successful for many children who've had cornea problems to be able to see much, much better. Another real medical breakthrough that relates to the cornea transplant is the fact that stem cells have also improved the success rate of a cornea transplant. Now, stem cells, they get a lot of press. And what a stem cell is, a stem cell is a cell that is usually found in a fetus. And this particular type of embryonic stem cell is a cell that through different types of reactions will become something. So a stem cell, through a series of reactions, it might become a brain cell. The stem cell might become a heart cell. It could become a kidney cell, a liver cell, a hair cell. A stem cell, in other words, can be produced into any particular type of cell. So what the researchers were able to do is they were able to take these stem cells and through a series of different types of reactions, they were able to make that stem cell become an important part of the cornea or the limbus region. And by being able to produce those cells, they could attach it to the eye, which improved the success rate of cornea transplants. So that is something that is really, really exciting. Now, more recently, there's been some other really, really great news about stem cell research. First of all, we have been able to find that stem cells can be taken from a developed human being. In other words, you do not have to use a fetal stem cell. You can actually cultivate stem cells from an adult or from a child. They also have the ability to cultivate stem cells from the umbilical cord or also using core blood. So many parents, when they have a baby, they actually are storing or preserving the core blood or the umbilical cord because there are stem cells there that can be utilized perhaps at a later time for that child. Now, the main advantage of using your own stem cells as compared to the stem cells of another fetus or embryo is that if you use your own stem cell, your body won't attack it. And the reason the body won't attack it is that the body won't perceive it as being a foreign substance. On the other hand, if you took a stem cell that came from an unknown fetus and they implanted it, there is a chance that your immune system, your antibodies might go after it and try to kill it because it perceives it as an invader. So basically, with these different types of stem cells, the scientists have been able to create a particular layer of the retina that is called the retinal pigment epithelium. And this is a very important part of the retina that is responsible for different types of vision problems in diseases such as macular degeneration 
or forms of juvenile macular degeneration. So with using a stem cell, if we could produce many of these layers of the retina, this could be a way that a person such as myself might be able to regain vision. We're also seeing that stem cells are being used for other parts of the eye. So if there's other tissues of the eye that are not functioning normally, this is something that also can be very helpful. Now, other areas of medical research also comes from the area of what we call antioxidation. Now, we all hear about antioxidants in the food we eat, but we also know that through each of these reactions of a cell, there's a lot of waste. Just like a manufacturing plant that's going to make bread, you know, you have a lot of waste that's coming out of that bakery. Well, the same thing happens to the cells of the retina. So we know now that there are many different types of foods that can be helpful. In an adult study, we found that vitamins could be very helpful in slowing down the progression of vision loss among adults with macular degeneration. So this is something that is very, very promising. Now, it's important that for children that we always consult with your doctors before you put your child on certain types of vitamin supplements. But we do think that these antioxidants are very, very healthy. We also feel that the omega-3s, these fish oils, are also very important. We know that the brain has a very, very high concentration of fat. And by having that nutritional supplement of fat in the omega-3s, the omega-6s, so you can have fish, tuna, all of these types of oily fish and things could be very, very healthy for the tissues of the nervous system, meaning it's helpful for the eyes, it's helpful for the blood vessels that provide blood to the eye and also to the brain. And lastly, we see that there's other types of research that's being performed that's also very, very exciting. We have seen some scientists where they have used some of the cells of an algae, and this is an algae that is able to detect light, and it will then send an electrical signal. So what they basically did is they did a gene therapy where this particular type of algae on the amoeba was injected into an eye of an animal, and when light was shined into the eyes of the animal, it then sent an electrical signal to the brain. So we're seeing that there's ways of even sort of bypassing the eye. Another way that they're also bypassing the eye is by using electrode implants. These are like little computer chips that are being implanted under the eye, and in one particular model, the patient would wear a pair of glasses, and the glasses have a very, very tiny camera. You can't even see it. It's thinner than like your thumbnail, and this picture from the camera is then sent to those electrical chips that are underneath the retina, and the electrical chip sends signals down the optic nerve, and it eventually strikes the brain. And people who have been blind are able to use this vision to navigate in an unfamiliar area. They can identify some numbers and letters, and they can even tell the difference between a bowl and a small plate. So it's really quite promising. So... The last particular thing I wanted to talk about is some of the work that is being done in Europe 
where they have created an implant that has many, many more electrodes, and this one does not utilize a camera. So the light goes directly into the eye, it strikes this chip, and it sends a signal back to the brain. So overall, you could see that there are just many, 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 many different types of research projects out there, and all of these things are going to have a tremendous benefit to the children. I really, really honestly believe that. You know, it was about 2004 when I started to lose my vision, and I studied all the research out there, and I really felt, you know, in my lifetime, there's probably very, very little hope that I will be able to see. But after reading a lot of the research that has been produced in the past three years, I am very, very excited. I'm very, very encouraged. So all of this type of research, the money that's being raised, all of the competition amongst the different research in the world is making this happen. They're not doing this just because they want to help people, unfortunately, but I think so much of this is related to the fact that the population is aging. And as the population is aging, we're seeing that there are millions and millions and millions of older adults with vision problems, and they realize this is a huge market. As they're doing more and more of this research to help the older folks, it eventually is just going to be that much better to help the children. So these advantages are are just really, really fantastic right now. And the last thing I'm going to say before we open it up to questions, I want to encourage many of you to come to the Fighting Blindness Vision Walk. This is something that is going to be on Sunday, October 23rd at UCLA, and the Foundation Fighting Blindness is really, truly responsible for much of these results. They are the organization that raises money through different vision walks across the country, and this is what funds this type of research. So if any of you are interested in helping out, you can simply come to the Vision Walk, which will be a really, very, very fun, a nice thing to do, or you can uh, raise money and ask some of your colleagues at work to donate a little bit. So you can go to their website, and it's www.fightblindness.org, and then you can click Vision Walk, and you could select the city, L.A., uh, if you want to join uh, any of the teams that's out there, you could do that, or you could start your own team, but uh, it's a really great event. So at this time, let's, let's go ahead and let's open it up to questions, and let's unmute your phone by pressing star six, and then we'll go ahead and uh, answer any questions. So press star six to unmute your phone now. Does uh, anybody have a question? Yes, Hi. Yeah, let's have your question. Thank you. Okay, well, part of it might be um, rephrasing things, um, but, you know, since we had a lot of more people, um, you know, come on in and join, um, they might benefit from this as well. So I guess um, what I'm looking for is from your expertise and from your area of knowledge, you know, since my daughter is six months of age right now, when do you think, you know, from what you found is would be a good age or if it matters, in reality, when we implant the intraocular lens, um, you know, as a result of her cataract, for those who didn't know my story, my baby had a cataract, so when would be the best time? She's six months old right now. Yeah, the question is, when's the best time to do an implant into the eye? 
And there's many things to think about. You know, the first thing is to think about her medical health. Many children at a very young age, they may not be strong enough to go through that type of surgery. Or some children, they don't do very well with general anesthesia. So what I would say is that we would really want to go ahead and try things in a particular order. My first recommendation would be to try a contact lens. Now, I know that you have tried a contact lens, and like with many children, if the contact lens is not successful, the child keeps rubbing them, it keeps knocking them out of the eye, or, you know, these are very difficult to put into the eye. For many eye doctors, it's very, very difficult. So it's very, very unrealistic at times for us to expect parents to do it. But as a solution for that, I would suggest as one possibility, I find the easiest way to teach parents to put the contact lens in the eye is to put the contact lens in the child's eye while the child is asleep. So you might wake up a bit earlier, but if your child wakes up at 8 o'clock, I would try to put the contact lens in at 6 or 7 o'clock. So that's probably the easiest way to insert the contact lens. But if your child is losing the contact lens all the time, the next thing is that I would then go to the glasses. I would have glasses on. And at this point in time, the eye that has had a cataract, all we want to do is stimulate the vision into the brain. So if we have a contact lens on or a pair of glasses, they're both serving the same purpose. But if for a particular reason that we can't get the contact lens on and the child just will not tolerate wearing the glasses, then at that point in time, I would then consider having the implant in after talking to the child's pediatrician as well as the ophthalmologist. Even though the implantation of artificial lens is fairly simple, any particular type of surgery always has a risk of infection. So in other words, when we open the eye to insert the artificial implant, there is a very slight chance of germs being around, even though it's a very sterile, very sterile operating room, there is still always that slight chance of infection. So after surgery, it's very, very important that we put the antibiotic in. So I would say go ahead and you might try to resume doing the contact lens by putting the contact lens in before she wakes up. If she keeps knocking the lens out or you lose them, I would then go to the glasses. If the glasses are something that really just isn't successful, I would then have a consultation and to do the implant. The most important thing is that we have some prescription on the eye as soon as possible. We cannot wait six months before we start to do the stimulation. The sooner that we put the contact lens or the glasses on, then we could stimulate the brain much sooner. Another question? Hello, Dr. Bill. Yes, hi. Yes, hi, this is Kim Childress. How are you doing? It's been a long time since I've called in, but um, I just wanted to hopefully chime in for the last mother um, a little bit. My daughter was diagnosed with cataracts and PHPV when, uh, you know, we caught it a little bit later, but um, she did have the surgery at seven months, and we've been using a contact lens for her ever since. Uh, we've been one of the fortunate uh, people where the contact lens has been very successful. Of course, you know, when a child's that small, it's very hard, like you said, to get in. And, 
and to keep it in because, you know, they're always going to want to rub. Um, what we did is we worked with our optometrist, and um, I think there might actually be more than one manufacturer that makes it. My recommendation might be to even try a different manufacturer to see if you have any more success with that one than the other, and that's what worked for us. Yeah, that's a really great suggestion. And if the contact lens is not being successful, part of the reason why a contact lens may not be successful on a child is because the contact lens doesn't fit properly. You know, fitting a contact lens is almost like fitting a saddle on a horse. If you have a saddle that is too curved, it pops off. If you have one that's too flat, it's going to slide off to the edges. So it's very, very important that you do have an optometrist who is very, very experienced in fitting those particular types of uh, contact lenses. In the Los Angeles area, I I really like to refer my patients to uh, Children's Hospital, and there's a Dr. Ellen, E-L-L-E-N, Matsumoto, who I just think is excellent with fitting children's contact lenses. But even situations where the contact lenses fit perfectly, uh, there, there still may be times that it's difficult for the child to wear the contact lens. Another question? Hello, Dr. Bill. This is Patty McLaughlin. Yes, hi. How are you? Hey. Um, I had a question, and I forgot it because I was so involved in listening to the parents share their story about with their daughters. Um, but I was going to say, when you try mm-hmm. to do stimulation, it would be important to make the contact lens use really valuable for the child. So something that's going to be so exciting that they want to look at it and, you know, instead of trying it in isolation when there's nothing to really look at. That yes, that's a really, really great point. And maybe, maybe with music with it and some other things that you know the child really enjoys, maybe even with food if you can't do it when they're asleep. Um Yes, yes, those are all really great points, and your your doctors should be telling you, if you do have a child who has low vision, remember, the main thing that we're really trying to do with a child with low vision is we're trying to stimulate that part of the brain. We're really trying to get information to the brain. So if you put a contact lens on your child, and your child, every time the contact lens goes on, the child just closes her eyes. That is not really having any benefit to stimulate the brain. I had a story about another child. This is a little bit older child who I believe she was about five or six, and she had a very, very weak eye. One eye was very weak, and the other eye was much better. And part of the thing was we wanted to do patching. So the mom basically said that she would do patching, and we measured the child's vision, and we said, you know what, my goodness, in one year her vision has not gotten better and the mom said that she has been patching her every day that she came home from school and so then my question was well what is she doing when she is patched is she watching tv is she going outside playing jump rope or is she doing detailed work like trying to read letters and mom said oh no she goes to sleep so it was kind of interesting because mom thought, well, I'm doing the right thing. We're patching. But for that child, she said, I can't see so good, so I'm just going to go to sleep. And so there was no stimulation to the vision. Well, we made a deal with this girl because she was old enough, but we said, you know, anytime you wear this patch, you can play any video game that you like. 
And she said, well, I want to play with the iPhone. Well, she got to play with the iPhone, and in a matter of three months, her vision improved significantly. So this just shows you that the patching has to be done at times that she's going to be looking or he's going to be looking. If they're not looking, we get no benefit. So, again, that's a good idea that when the child wakes up with a contact lens on, let's use the most visually stimulating toys and other activities. In some of our uh, upcoming lectures that we're going to have, we're going to talk about specific activities that are very stimulating. But for a six-month-old, like Maria was talking about her child, I would think something, you know, very, very high contrast with a lot of moving patterns, that will be something that will be stimulating. And I would recommend a baby Einstein, a baby Mozart video, and I would want that to be at a distance of about 16 inches away. And we would go ahead and turn off all the other lights in the room just so that the baby could focus on that particular uh, television set. So it is very important that we have an activity that's going to be very stimulating for the child. Great comment. Thank you. Another question? Um, Dr. Rosemary, again, just really quickly, I wanted to say thanks for all that feedback. I never really thought of, you know, inserting the lens while she was sleeping. And, um, well, don't get me wrong, we really truly feel that the contact has worked, you know. As far as it's doing its job, we feel like it has. Um, before, when I used to um, come up to my baby, she was wearing her patch because we had to, we had to strengthen it because as a result of the cataract, her eye got a little bit lazy. So whenever we were patching, and even when she was wearing her contact initially, she couldn't tell that I was standing right in front of her. But now, with her patch and her contact, she can see when I'm around, even, you know, when I'm walking, you know, around the room. So I don't have to be really close. So it has worked, you know, remarkably. You know, the only concern I had, you know, is just the fact that she hates it, you know, just having to insert the contact and the fact that it has come out a couple of times. So it has been really stressful. So I guess from what you said, we shouldn't, I guess, consider surgery before we consider glasses? Yes. Well, I would do it that way. And the reason that I say that is because during the first year of life, it's a very good chance that the eye is going to change shape and the prescription will change. Now, this doesn't really mean a lot to most of you in the audience, but for example, many children who've had a cataract surgery, the first lens that they need might be a power of a 35. And then by the time that they're 12 months old, they may only need a 20. And by the time that they're two years old, maybe they need a 16. So we see that as the shape of the eye changes, their prescription can change quite a bit too. And that's, again, why there are many doctors who might say, well, let's go ahead and let's wait. You know, she's doing pretty well with the glasses or she's doing pretty well with the contact lenses. So let's wait until the eye grows a little bit, and then we could do things with the implant. Okay? So I would just say, Let's take it, you know, slower. Try these things step by step. Again, you could uh, contact your, your Braille specialist, Caroline Clark, because she's, <laughs> she's awesome. She could help you, and, and we could communicate. And the last thing for you, Maria, I also want you to know is that vision is a learned and developed skill. And usually for the first six months of life, children don't have the ability to follow by moving their eyes very well. So many times you might see a child who's two months, three months, four months, 
and they don't follow you very well if you're walking. But by the time that they're five, six months, they then can start to follow better. So there's a lot of different things to look at before we try to judge what a child can or cannot see. But try the try putting the contact lens at night, and uh, we'll be in touch. Another question? Oh, at night or just before she wakes up? Before she wakes up. Another question, please? Your name is what? Andra. I have a daughter who's seven months old, and she had stroke at birth, and uh, she still doesn't see anything. And she's seven months old. And we try to stimulate her vision pretty much every day. Well, part of the things is... Anything. Well, part of the things are here, you know, first of all, it's often very, very difficult for parents to know if a child does see something or not. But there are many different types of tests that we will do as doctors to try to determine what is the child able to see. And we also want to find out, you know, for example, based on some of the tests that were performed, we could find out from an MRI or CAT scan what part of the brain did the stroke affect. So, for example, some children, they may be seven months of age, and maybe it did affect the part of the brain that controls the eye movements. Other times it might affect the part of the brain that gives central vision. Other times it might be peripheral vision. So we would really need to try to perform that type of a functional vision assessment to find out what regions of vision might be the best and which may be the weakest. But we see many times that children, it may take them even longer for them to develop certain levels of vision. It could be two to three times slower for them to develop that. So I would recommend that your child would be seen by doctors who are familiar with working with neurological vision impairment, and if you could then also bring any of the other types of MRI or CAT scans and such. Now, do you know what part of the brain the stroke uh, is left on? So she has the injury on the left side. uh, Her basal ganglia and thalamus got affected. Okay. We to an ophthalmologist here in Loma Linda, and she uh, tested her eyes, and she said structurally her eyes are very normal. There was no damage to optic nerve. Great, great. So the two, the two of the parts, the eye and the optic nerve, are good. And did the doctor say anything about the occipital lobe of the brain? Yeah, there's no damage on uh, that part, too. Uh, the only uh, yeah, areas that were damaged was in basal ganglia and thalamus in a very deep part of her uh, brain on the left side. Okay. So it may just be that the the location of the injury may have affected some of the eye movements. So in other words, she may see things, but she can't react by moving her eyes at this time. Okay, so that's a possibility. Other things that they may do, there is a test that's called a visual evoked potential, VEP. And that's another way that the doctors can determine what can a child actually see. So this is where a child looks at a computer screen and they put a little electrode on the back of the head and they could find out is the picture of the computer screen reaching that 
visual part of the brain called the occipital lobe. So many times a child might have good eyes, a good nerve, and a good occipital of the brain, but they appear that they can't see because they can't move their eyes or other types of problems to, to the midbrain or the brainstem. Okay? So if you want to request another test, there is something called the visual evoked potential that will tell us what she is actually able to see in the central vision. And there's other visual evoked potentials that can tell us what the child could see in the peripheral vision. But the basal ganglia area is most likely affecting some of that kind of eye movement. Okay. Okay. And that, you might you might ask the doctors at Loma Linda for that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Hello, Doctor Bill. Yes. Hi. Your name. Hello. My name is Waleska Rubio, and I would like I would like to know if there is any new treatment for the uh, albinism children. For the what type of children? I'm sorry. The one that have albinism. Oh, albinism. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Well, you know, there are a lot of different types of research that are being performed, but not as much. And the reason for that is children with albinism have such a high degree of functional vision. We find that the best treatments for children with albinism are the different types of low vision aids. But getting back to what we talked about earlier with the gene therapy, we feel that there's going to be possible things that could help in albinism because that is a genetic condition. Uh -huh. So many times it's that they lack something that's called tyrosinase. So if a child has tyrosinase negative, then this is something that gene therapy can potentially produce this. But you might say, why aren't they doing more research on albinism? Yeah. Well, the reason for that is that there are so many, many more children and adults who have other types of problems with the retina that are much more common compared to the albinism. But well, it is, there, is, there is something, a lot of research that's being done, and there's a group in San Diego that's doing a lot of research on albinism, so it's very good. Okay, thank you. My son is already 20 years old, but I saw him many years ago. <laughs> oh, great. So he's doing great. He's doing great. He's driving. Great. But Tell you know, me. he asked me if there is any kind of surgery that can improve his vision. Well, you tell him that I said hello, and he is uh, a, a great person who should be listening to these types of meetings and learning himself because okay. the knowledge will empower him to get all the things that would help him. Okay, okay. I will. So we're out of time right now, and I want to thank all of you for joining in this evening. I'm going to send you my email, so if any of you have other questions, you may email me. And my email is drbillfoundation, D-R-B-I-L-L -L foundation at gmail.com. That's drbillfoundation at gmail.com. And uh, we will be seeing you next month. It will be on the second Tuesday of October. I, I don't know quite exactly what that date is. I believe it might be the 11th. It yes, Dr. Bill. I hate to interrupt, but on the flyer, it must be a misprint then, a typo. Because on the flyer that went out, it has the date as October 12th, which is, in fact, a Wednesday. Yes, it would be a Tuesday, 
So uh, it would be the second Tuesday of the month. And what's that date then? The 11th. The next lecture will be on Tuesday, October 11th. So thank you very much. And again, you can find us at AirsLA, www.airsla.org, and at BrailleInstitute.org. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Burden. Thank you, Dr. Bill.